0: Hello, creeps! I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory, welcome to Horror Vanguard. This is 2024, but we are still recording from the safe confines of our shelter in 2023. This is a missive sent to the future. Uh, li- listeners of the distant 2024 second week of January, if you can hear us, uh, please, please write back. Please send the cure back in time if those technologies are available to us. Um, I am one of your intrepid chrononauts, Ashley Darrow, joined as always by John, a.k.a. the Liquor Guy. Oh, my God. <coughs> a.k.a. the Liquor Guy. <laughs> How's it going, John?
1: Uh, good. We are uh, recording from within our porcelain-lined podcasting uh environment. Um everything is is ready to go. Um yeah, I, I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that we've made it
0: here. A mark of health upon us all today. <laughs> <laughs> just oh, all of, yeah. feeling so well, feeling so ready
1: to be out in the 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 on,
0: ongoing and unfolding nightmare of, of capitalist modernity. Yeah I'm just gonna go ahead and stay on my little pod. <laughs>
1: i mean uh, it's
0: uh you know it's a security thing it's one might even say it helps us feel safe boom and that is what we're talking about today this is this is the i do believe this is the first todd haynes movie we've talked about on the show which is uh uh, much to our detriment to not have started the todd Haynes ball rolling much earlier but now we have seal broken uh, poison next yeah, poison. Uh, I also think we should talk about Carol as well at some point. Uh, yeah. Ton Ta- 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 Haden has zero bad movies. Po- Poison's my favorite Tom Ta- Ta- Haden's movie. I-, I think. I think, a, I think Poison is. Margin.
1: I think Poison is uh, actually after having seen this, I don't know.
0: I think it's, I love th- this movie. For the record, I-, I just think Poison is just fire.
1: Yeah, but I mean, Poison's a banger. But this um, uh, this one very much got under my skin. Uh, we Badach. are talking about, we're talking about Safe from 1995, uh, anchored by a genuinely incredible performance by Juliet Moore. Um, and I think, I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I think we, we're going to get into some really interesting discourse. Um, so as, as always, I invite, uh, all uh, all listeners who all of all of the fellow travelers on our wellness journey all practitioners <laughs> of the holistic and deep ecology to uh stop for a moment um grab some deionized water and listen <laughs> as uh ash very gently and uh in a chemical free way tells us
0: what Todd Haynes film
1: <laughs> safe is about
0: Alright, and listeners, uh, uh, go ahead and place your bets for the citation I make at the top of this pricey. Uh Here we go. Alan Badiou's In Praise of Love describes the notion of love as an act of minimal communism. Badiou's notion of love centers around not in overcoming of the barriers between the self and the other, but in celebrating the existence of those unconquerable gulfs. Love, in this sense is an outgrowth of the wonder we cultivate when we celebrate our connection to the experience of knowing the unknown. The final moments of Todd Haynes' safe turn this act of minimal communism inward. Carol, riddled with lesions, isolated in a hermetic tent, half alive with disease, meets her own gaze in the mirror and says, I love you, for what could be the first time with any great earnestness. The self, a sponge for the world's pain, remains largely uncontactable from either the position of an exterior other or from within. Carol, who is still awash in what Linda Williams might describe as the power and pleasure within the given limits of patriarchal constraints on women, finds a love for herself that resonates with a Benjaminian dawning of liberation. Carol is not free, as we are not free. Carol cannot become free in a world defined by the absence of those freedoms. There is no socialism in one heart, but the first steps that allow us to emerge from capitalism's long torpor begin with realizing that we are worth saving, worth fighting for, and indeed worth loving. The exploration of an outer space is, at its onset, defined by hegemonic beliefs about the very concepts of exploration in space. Take a step towards a new inner outside as we discuss safe.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yes. Yes, indeed. Safe. Uh, Baseball pun entered and over. The actual chat can begin. (laughs) Uh, Well,
1: I think we should uh, begin, as we always do, in the uh, newly refurbished and expertly upholstered (laughs) living
0: room of the Formalism Zone. Do not give me... Oh, I was just gonna say. Don't get me started on how mad I am when they sent us those those awful teal couches for our jet black formalism crypt. Yeah, I mean, why would we order teal? It doesn't go with anything that we've got. Anything? Like. It's it's literally all Vanta black. I keep tripping in here. It's kind of awful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, where would you like to where would you like to begin with? Uh, our formal discussions.
0: Well, let's 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 just go ahead and dive right into kind of the visual and sonic landscape of Safe. I think this mm-hmm. movie is just sonically and visually a treat. This a beautiful, stunningly beautiful film and how it's shot, and just, just just a masterclass in sound design for cinema.
1: Uh, yeah, and I know you wanted to you wanted to talk about maybe some of the kind of genealogical influences or stylistic influences on this film.
0: I'm not. I'm not sure. Like, like I, could, I couldn't find anything on how the, the the kind of like the flow of influence goes here, but like for me watching this, I'm just like, this is the, the, this is a chick flick made with a kind of like X Files and Lynchian sensibility. This is like an ambient drone cinema piece, uh, you know, like like wrapped inside of a weepy. It is it is just fantastic and like brooding and powerful like wall to wall there's like no wasted moment in this film it's just like like being hit by like i don't know like like a sonic wave it's like a sun concert or something
1: i mean it's interesting so to me i was sort of like the um the medical scene from the exorcist what if that lasted for two hours (laughs) that's that's what this film reminds me of that's what this film sort of feels like to me um I I agree with the Lynchian aspect, but I think there's a lot more. Um, Lynch is is far more kind of like libidinized, right? The whole, I mean, for example, Twin Peaks. The whole point is there is this kind of like teeming, incoate, cathonic, libidinal economy under the surface of like benign domesticity. Like this film, in contrast, smells like a doctor's waiting room. <laughs> right there is like there's such there's such a kind of like antiseptic isolationist sterility to it particularly that's, that's particularly the first
0: particularly the the opening section where it is very domestic in its setting i i, I agree with the domesticity and, I, and i'm really happy you kind of brought up the exorcist as like a point of comparison here because i th- this one struck me as being like like almost sweating with its libidinal desire. You know, it's just as in the exorcist we we kind of uh transplant a lot of sexual desire onto kind of the visual and violent landscape of demonic possession. Here that's all being transplanted to these growing medical uh anxieties and growing medical concerns. It it kind of mm. for me played out along very similar lines and like there, there is, there is kind of a a clinical precision to a lot of the shots. I'm thinking of like the dinner scene uh, with, with the family, and then we have like Carol walks back into the cl- the kitchen, and there's like this partition that div- like is just dividing her and the family, and they're not even looking at each other, shouting back and forth. There's like a, a calculating, uh, cleanness to that, but at the same time, there's like a all all throughout this movie, this this is this is like a, a container overflowing with these these unaddressed desires with this kind of like the 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 hastily concealed mucal lining of the libidinal in this film
1: i i kind of get what you're saying but i i like i to to me this is very much a film about alienation
0: oh 100 Um,
1: yeah like and like alienation psychoanalytically is about the kind of i i agree up to a point but i think to call them libidinal desires in implies a degree of recognition or, or of kind of comprehension of what those desires are, right? The desires are, the desires are nameless, like they have no, There, there is no object. In fact, the, the kind of whole point of the film is Carol trying to solve this, or the only solution that we end up with is solving a fundamentally internal problem. To want is to want something as an externality right like but what is it that she wants is is kind of irrelevant because really the film ends like going back inwards i think a really good way of kind of like unpicking what you've brought up though is to contrast that ending scene with um uh with how the
0: film opens yeah let's uh, so so what do you what do you think about kind of our opening sex scene that we get right off the bat yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good, like,
1: this is a really good example of, like, the fact that I think Desire is sort of nameless in this, at least for Carol. It's almost disassociative, right? She's looking almost directly into the camera, right? The 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 actual involvement, the actual sex that's happening on screen doesn't really involve her as a person. Oh, of course not. Right? So, like, to, this is why I, I get what you mean when you're talking about this kind of, like, I, I, but I think I think that's that's pushing things a little too far, because I I think the whole point is the alienation of like fundamentally not this kind of like internal ontological fissure that exists in subjectivity is something that goes all the way down to the ground.
0: Yeah, I definitely think building off of that, like for me, like the kind of opening sex scene is. One to just just really clearly the fact that like cis heteronormative sex and patriarchal relationships exist solely for the purpose of maintaining that kind of patricentric hegemonic power. It has nothing to do with with kind of like you know, women's pleasure especially, and obviously, but you know even kind of that type of sexual gratification more broadly you know it's 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 it has a system sustaining focus, and that's what we're watching here right and and indeed, like you know the husband you know we get so many lines where he's like doing like classic uh, shitty boyfriend stuff that borders on, or perhaps even eclipses abuse when it's like, Oh, how many nights in a row can you get a headache and stuff like that? But what I think is it also kind of highlights, and this is something that I might like disagree slightly with is that like, this isn't a fundamentally internal thing going on with Carol. Like this is an external thing, right? Like this isn't, she's not kind of anhedonically lost because she's alienated from pleasure on some kind of like abstract psychic sense. She's, she's in this predicament because she exists in a world wherein women are not like subjects unto themselves. They're objects for trade under patriarchy. Right. She, she, and then like, you know, as we, as we see her character play out in like the first third of the movie, right. She's the consummate housewife. All she does is run errands and kind of micromanage the home and kind of exist to facilitate a kind of set piece in her husband's life, which plays out in the dinner scene. And so for me like this is this is kind of like a deeply external conflict right like this is there is there is kind of like a named expressed desire that's kind of emerging in Carol and that's like this kind of precursor to other other more I, th- I guess granular desires right like she is coming into realizing that there's more in this world and that there's more for her especially and we and even though that's misguided and misplaced as as kind of initial steps often are we get so many lines from her where she's kind of like Timid, but eagerly expressing some kind of newfound uh, truths about the world. She keeps talking about how she's learning new things about chemicals and how they relate to her and her position with these things and her condition. And it's, it's the kind of like first fumblings with agency, right? But it is, again, yeah, like to, to go mean- back to Williams, it is that agency that's hemmed in by this kind of patrocentric hegemonic force.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree up to a point, but like the problem, of course, is like she expresses all of that agency, uh, within the confines set by a literal cult. Like, yes, yes. Like I think it's, I think it's like, I think it's important to flag up: this is not a film that resolves. Right, this is not a film that resolves into like an easily digestible semi-didactic lesson right I oh, think no. it'd be a real mis- mistake to do the like the good for her reading of this oh movie. no
0: she does not end this as like a girl boss liberated by like a like I don't know a fucking like Mansonian tea cult yeah I
1: mean because I think I think you, you're you hitting on something with this idea of it being about object objectification and the actually the objectification being I, I would argue almost universal like, it, none of her conversations with her uh, friends have any kind of depth to them until she till she moves out of the San Fernando Valley. None of her, um, like, interactions at all move past the kind of surface level uh, for a variety of reasons. And every other person also seems to be kind of, like, existing on this. Like, to be a person in the world that she exists within is necessarily to be an object in relation to a wider system of objects.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and again, like this is all expressed in that opening sec- the sex scene, right? And, and to, to, to kind of belabor uh, some of the worst dis- film discourse that's emerged in the last few years is like, this is an ex- example of the absolute vital necessity of a sex scene in a film. You know, like uh, up until Carol starts developing her her medical conditions, right? And her relationship to those. Everything you need to know about her character is expressed in this less than two minute long sex sequence.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even to call it sex is a little bit strange, right? Like, because I mean, that's that's like because that's what it is. But like this idea of like, oh, it be it's sex scenes are so graphic is like you don't see
0: anything. What you see is is a person. I mean, what what you see is like brutality, right? Like this is this is one of the most violent sex scenes. I've, I, I mean, we we watch nothing but horror movies here, and this is one of those sex scenes where I'm like, Jesus Christ! It reminded me a bit of like Liquid Sky and just kind of like the cold brutality of what we're watching. It just obviously won't read in those terms because like the, uh, uh, uh the the doting housewife being checked out while her like hideous groaning meat husband, uh, uh, grinds and writhes is is played for laughs rather than played for like the kind of. Grotesque violence that that kind of attitude is structured upon. Yeah, I I
1: think, and and you know, furthermore, I think like the the, the idea of them serving a purpose is fine, but I'm also like they can be like sex scenes can just be useless. They they like they don't need to have utility. Because, in fact, like, isn't all, all of cinema in a way is kind of
0: fundamentally useless? It doesn't, doesn't have utility. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's all fundamentally voyeuristic, right? You know, like, to, to imply that the sex scene that exi- that's in a movie just, you know, which doesn't occur in this film, but can and does occur in many others, is just there because you've got two hot people. So I don't know why not. Like, I, you could say the same thing about, like, half the action scenes in an action movie. It's just there because you've got some people who can fight on screen, So I don't know. Or like Um, jump scares. I don't know. We could have this conversation about everything, but yeah, there's nothing wrong with a little libidinal pleasure.
1: I think that, I think the big thing about this film and the thing that sort of makes me think in terms of like it being an exploration of internality and like, an and a kind of, again, it's a very Zhegeckian thing, right? The ontological split in the subject, the subject that doesn't know itself a block talks about this as well the the darkness of the lived moment where like we actually don't know we don't not only do we not know what we want we don't even know mm-hmm. who it is that's doing the wanting yes and i think the thing that kind of makes me think about this is the first half especially is apart from like three maybe four scenes uh carol is almost entirely framed and shot in isolation Yes. And there's so many moments where like the camera kind of withdraws into the middle distance. There's a there's actually one of my favorite see, uh, shots in the entire film. It's like she walks into her house. And there's this very slow, very gradual um uh, pull of, pulling of the focus so the depth of field changes and the kind of corners of the room just kind of bend and warp mm-hmm. slightly as the camera gently pulls back. And it's so unbelievably creepy. Yes. Um, because, like, oh all, all of this space, all of the space that she's in is empty, right? There is, like, there's nothing more kind of horrifying than the idea that the world that we inhabit is just this kind of collection of flat, phenomenal objects, right? So much stuff, Zizek uses the the kind of uh, idea of like it's like a half finished computer game, right? If you put if you looked behind things, there would just be like unfinished nothingness there, and it's like that's that's the world that she inhabits in the first half of this film, right? It's a kind of like ontological void. So like there there is she is she is just a figure in nothingness, and I think that's what makes her eventual social isolation hit so
0: much harder. So I I I really want to build off of this, but first, uh, you, you mentioned Bloch. Is that Ernst Bloch, the the writer and left philosopher that you're talking about? It it might well be, yeah. And would there would there be a a forthcoming book for I really wish I knew more about Ernst Bloch, but oh there's so many books out there and I don't know where to start. <laughs> Do you have a good suggestion for something that someone like me could read? That might be out from uh, repeater zero in a few months. Uh, Well, maybe in March, you might be able to get
1: yourself a copy of A Primer on Utopian Philosophy, An Introduction to Ernst Bloch, uh, written by yours truly. Uh, It's very short. It's very cheap. Um, If you would like to know more about arguably, I think, the most significant Marxist philosopher of the 20th century... um, yeah buy it it's a good book it's a good book i wrote a book
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I highly i mean i've been reading john's primers on left theory since before and john and i were friends and I, I can't recommend them enough as a great way to get your feet wet when it comes to these uh thinkers that honestly like this, this, this stuff gets complicated it gets hard to parse and an easily digestible very readable uh, entertaining introduction is what's needed Link in the show notes. Uh, uh, when when such a link exists, uh, get those orders in, everyone. I highly recommend it. <laughs> we're trying to get better at promotion over here, but we're still so bad. <laughs>
1: how
0: how do um promote thing that I did? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, oh, but the, so the thing that I wanted to say is that like I, I think it's really important to kind of like kind of flesh out this architecture right try and like map the landscape of how carol is presented on screen in relation to like this kind of idea of community and other people because you're right she's totally alone with the exception of people she's who are subordinated to her right oh yes very important so she's not alone when there are kind of like laborers moving her furniture around because She's clearly bourgeois, right? Like, she's clearly in, in some upper middle class or upper class strata. And so, she, of course, she's got, you know, like, servants that can move her furniture. She also has uh, Hispanic uh, uh, house servants, liberal servants, just pouring her milk and cleaning things for her. Also, her cleaners that she goes to, right? Like, another another people who are another, like, racialized minority that is oppressed and is explicitly oppressed by her. Um, and then like, she's not alone when we see her with other housewives, but in those, those scenes are like some of the most difficult to watch because it is like that struggled conversation where like alienation and the kind of an absence of subjectivity and an absence of contact with desire creates these like stiltified cultural exchanges where her friend is like, I'm on a fruit diet. Would you like to order some fruit? And Carol is, like, baffled by the concept of ordering something that's not what she always ever orders. And then a Lark gets fruit. And it's, like, the most happy and excited she is until she joins a cult.
1: Yeah. And, and this is what I mean when I say, like, we see we see the film from her point of view. But, like, every other person is is almost, exa- apart from, like, some very key exceptions, almost every other person is is experiencing exactly the same kind of existential alienation alienation mm-hmm. on the sort of like profoundest level.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean like so so the uh, uh the self-help guru that Carol winds up uh throwing her lot in with later in the movie, right? The this is like one of the most jarring tonal shifts I've seen in a film in a minute because we go from this like just antiseptic existence where everyone her husband her doctors are all just like on autopilot they're all like it's 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 very Stepford wives and then and then you get to the cult and like all all of a sudden we have uh, characters with agency characters with passion characters with desires it's just a shame they're being led by this like soft Koreshian self-help guru who's kind of fascist yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and and all of this is
1: happening in a film, which is essentially, I think it's very, it's very important. You pointed out Ira Levine's Stephen Wives*. That's a big thing. Uh, there's there's echoes of like Rosemary's Baby in here as oh, well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but like the longer cinematic tradition is that of the melodrama, or as it's more kind of like commonly, and maybe it's like, but pe- uh, slightly pejoratively dismissed slightly? as the
0: the the weepy, yeah, the weepy, the chick flick girl movies uh, that that is that is a vein in which we're mining today.
1: Uh, yeah, what do you think about this
0: considering it as a melodrama? So the, the, this I find to be really interesting because melodrama is something that we talk a lot about in the context of Twin Peaks and pretty much nothing else. <laughs> um, but it is it is worth way more filmic consideration, especially for a horror podcast, because w- w- what's the thing that we're always talking about? Horror wants to do things to your body, right? And and what are the two genres that overlap most strictly with horror? Comedy and pornography. Right. Like we're all so someone's tits are always busting out in a horror movie. And if the horror movie is bad enough or you've seen it too many times, it gets a little funny. Right. But the, the kind of the kind of missing thread in this, the kind of like fourth member of our of our libidinal quartet here is the melodrama. Because that that impulse to cry, that impulse to to be sad, to kind of burst open with this suffering. That's also the the a kind of like cinema wanting to do something to your body. Yeah. Do you do you have a um, do you have a favorite? Oh, man. Oh. So. No, but for really weird reasons, because I cry during like a lot of movies. Weirdly, I didn't cry during this. I, I, I'm, I'm approaching this from like the affective, like uh, receptive audience response right now for what qualifies as like a melodramatic movie. Um, but what, what, what about you? Do you have a favorite, either affectively from your own perspective or from the, the genre? I'm thinking maybe like North and South for me. Um, I think I think North and South is maybe um a kind of good literary. uh, uh very, it's example. very gothic. It's it's very. You went to grad school, yeah. I mean, I, I Todd Haynes' right uh, made Far from
1: Heaven, mm-hmm. right? That's that's a classic. Uh. You've got uh, Douglas Sirk movies from the 50s, like All That Heaven Allows. Um, I suppose in a way you could even say that um, you've got something like uh, The Merchant of Four Seasons from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think the, the, the entire kind of like confluence of the melodrama is that it's essentially non-realist or non mimetically realist in a sort of straightforward sense. Um But I think what's interesting is the modern melodrama and its obsession with illness, which I think ties into a longer kind of like uh, patriarchal genealogy of anxieties around hysteria, particularly.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can tease out of this. And I think the best way to start to tease that out is to talk about the yellow wallpaper. Oh, yeah oh what what's the what's the movie about it's about charlotte perkins gilman
1: and the yellow wallpaper
0: <laughs> oh yeah sometimes okay, so, sometimes so, you just need a rest cure for your uh, uh temporary nervous disorder so for people who don't know um ash what is the yellow wallpaper uh yellow wallpaper comes out in 1892 uh so a uh, bit bit old uh, it descri- It's the story of a woman who uh, is suffering from. I think it's temporary nervous depression in, in the book as her like technical diagnosis, but she's she's suffering from a, a kind of general hysteria. One of those old timey cognitive disorders that were assigned to women who were I don't know feeling something. Um, and her husband imposes a rest cure on her, and rest cures are essentially you just do nothing for an extended period of time, typically locked in isolation in a room. Uh, so it doesn't sound as doesn't sound as good as it does on the tin. Uh, but so uh, our our protagonist uh, proceeds to spend a very long amount of time in a room with disgusting yellow wallpaper. Uh, and then she begins to hallucinate and disassociate and have these kind of surreal eerie encounters with figures in the wallpaper, her own kind of dissolving sanity. think that think that about covers it. Yeah, um and the story the story
1: is written kind of in a fragmented first person mm-hmm. style um it's not entirely clear exactly what's happened but there is this it there is this kind of long sort of tradition of um psychosomatic illness being a uniquely uh feminine coded trait that has to be kind of disciplined and regulated yes. by masculine authority it's very telling that her health club uh her fitness instructor that's that's woman that's where all of her friends are who are also women uh her doctor he's a guy the psychotherapist that she's sent to he's a man the the, the david koresh-esque figure of the wellness cult that's another right so uh all of these are kind of like a regulative disciplinary biopolitical structures yeah um that are trying to if not, like, not really trying to cure her, but get her to a position of um, no longer making her own illness the problem of others.
0: Yes, and, and this is, the, I mean, like, I'm glad you brought up biopower, right? Like, this is a very solid point, whether we're talking about the yellow wallpaper or we're talking about safe. Is that the point, the point isn't some kind of, like, wellness for Carol or wellness for the protagonist in the yellow wallpaper, the, the point is to get them to submit, right? The point is to, again, make them productive. In this case, we're, we're talking about women, so we're talking about reproductive labor. But to, to make their labor useful, again, for hegemonic power structures, right? Capital in general, but specifically, in this case, the patriarchy. Um, but but I, what I kind of will say with that is, you know, like, as, as with the yellow wall the yellow wallpaper ends with our protagonist Walking around the room, uh, believing that she's uh, the figure trapped in the yellow wallpaper now, uh, but her husband faints when he when he walks in the room, and she just keeps stepping over his unconscious body. <clears throat> um, and this 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 very very great very good little fuck you thrown in there, and I think you know like the, the kind of like notion of sickness in weepies right in melodramas and the notion of sickness and kind of like this because this is obviously this is an expressly feminist film right with a capital f uh, uh you're openly struggling with those uh, kind of theoretical perspectives like that that notion of illness does allow us to have broader conversations about agency about power about the limits of agency and power without the patriarchy being directly challenged you know just just as we see in the yellow wallpaper
1: yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll get to that when we sort of start talking about the discourses of neoliberalism uh, and a kind of like cultural, cultural neoliberalism um, that is all over this. Um, but y- you're completely right to kind of connect it to this longer what we might call the misogyny of cinema tradition, yeah. um, and and of course the fact that these things can always be read against themselves, right? Because uh, melodramas have always been popular with women right and mm-hmm. in, a, in a way in a way i sort of uh i sort of think of like there's a connection between like the lifetime movies about like somebody tragically dying of a of a terminal illness oh yeah yeah, yeah. with something like true crime mm-hmm. i actually think there's Go there's on. probably there's probably a connection there because those are two things which are like medical and legal systems, which so often fail women specifically, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether through misdiagnosis, through police incompetence, or police abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like those forms are like forms of catharsis. yes. you know, m- yes. means means by which you encounter the 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 kind of like uncomprehendable real. And there's nothing like there's nothing more real than the kind of
0: finitude of death, right? And in some way, try and like diffuse it somehow. I am so happy you just said cathexis. Today's is, today's is, uh, magic word, everyone. Um, because w- one of the things I think about here is that, like, I mean, especially especially in the context of illness, right? Like, it, and I guess this will this will get us rolling into the discourse zone here, right? Because uh, uh, multiple chemical sensitivity, I think, is the 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 disorder that Carol has in this film. Which is is a highly controversial uh, medical diagnosis, right? There are people who think that condition exists and is a real thing, and there are other people who think it's uh, either just straight up doesn't exist or it's perhaps better explained by other physical and psychological phenomena. Um, But that's kind of besides the point, right? That's not really the conversation of this film is whether or not she's actually sick or is she just acting out Um, because she is actually sick, and what she's sick with is oppression, Right. She's sick in a world where she's oppressed uh, not not only by capital, but by gender. Right. Like like all of her connections to the world around her are hollow and facile. Right. You know, like as we discussed at the start of this, like her her connection with her own desire is all kinds of fucked up. And so, you know, of, of course, there's there's kind of a neurosis here. Of course, there's a sickness and it's crushing, but it's it's social. Right. It's infected us all. She's just coming to like those first steps of realizing that like oh something is horribly wrong in the world in which i find myself and i think like yeah that is that kind of like you know like like brushing against the grain here with this film or not not even that is the grain of the film rather is kind of like like teasing at all of these like i i i guess like loose hairs in our social structure
1: yeah exactly uh, and again i don't think this resolves in any kind of straightforward no, sense no and i, I think it's um, really
0: important that it doesn't
1: and it, it because it, it's whole. The whole point is this notion of like, and I, I, the kind of additional final thing to bring up, and maybe this can be a bridge out of the formalism zone into uh, thinking through our discourse is because you hit upon. We've been dancing around this kind of the topic of so, of the social world, and I think the problem or one of the problems is like what it means to be a burden. Mm -hmm. if you're sick um and basically what that means in the context of this film and i think more broadly is you cease to be productive or um you cease to do all of the uncompensated labor that allows your husband to go off and do his quote-unquote business um and i think that's this is 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 that the point of recovery, right? That's got to be the question, right? Is the aim of getting better to go back to doing the uncompensated labor that allows the system that produces illnesses in the first place to can keep functioning?
0: That 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 I think is 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 such a such a strong point. And uh, the first thing that, of course, that makes me think of is like the way that you're describing this. It kind of sounds like capitalism is some kind of a horrific story that we live through. And I I just <laughs> I wish that there was a book by an author that our listeners might already even be a fan of that can kind of, you know, help help them process and help them explore the issue of capitalism as a horror story. Off just off the dome here. I know this might be a little tricky. Do you have any reading recommendations or books that we can pre-order? <laughs> Again, how, how,
1: how (laughs) me tapping at my keyboard, how to promote book, question mark. Um, Yes, I have another book coming out. It's called Capitalism, a Horror Story, Gothic Marxism and the Dark Side of the Radical Imagination. It comes out the first week of July. Pre-orders are open. You should pre-order it. Get Uh, it. If you are, if you are a, a long time or frequent listener to HV, it will basically be, like an HV companion, um, because this has been an avenue where I've worked out lots of my thoughts in conversation with Ash, who is one of the best and smartest people I know. I thank you. Uh, but yeah, you should pre-order the book.
0: It's really good. Um, I would really like it to do well. <laughs> <laughs> links to all of that in the show notes, in addition to links to our Patreon page. Uh, which you get a bonus episode, you get early access, and it really does mean the world. It keeps the, the, our, our little spooky train on the tracks over here. Um, there's a train metaphor in a movie with no trains, sadly. Uh, the only the only thing that I would uh, finger wag, wag Todd Haynes for is this movie needed at least one train. Even in the background would have been nice, but, you know, oh well. <laughs> there we go. See, we're so good at this now. We're so good at promotion. I can't wait to become one of those, like, rich podcasters spotify was Where, like, where's our exclusive yeah i think it's like three of them <laughs> <laughs> and see they all got there because they had grind set and they got good at promoting
1: it this wasn't it wasn't
0: anything else you know we're good at
1: talking about the formal qualities of todd haynes safe from 1995 for
0: 40 minutes <laughs> uh, i think i think uh, uh you mean we're good at uh, doing grad school at each other Thank you, Jake. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you, Jake. Thank you, Poddam America, for the most true. That's the, you know, honestly, that does tie in to Todd Haynes's Safe too, because that was, that was, that was a look at the self that was hilarious, but also like so incredibly real <laughs> that I was like, oh, damn, that is true.
1: <laughs> mm.
0: But kind of, kind of building off what what you were saying before before we uh so. Uh, definitely, so artistically, uh, uh, like an Olympian doing a swan dive flawlessly into water—the surface didn't even ripple. Uh, before before we promoted your books, um, yeah, I, I really, I really think that like th- you know th- this does move us nicely into the discourse zone, and we should kind of talk about like neoliberalism and the self more broadly because I think that that like this movie is having that conversation through the vehicle of gender and queerness and AIDS, which we'll also get into here in the discourse zone. But it is really a movie about how neoliberalism and the self kind of collide.
1: The term that came to mind a lot, um, and I think Mark Fisher borrows this from a psychologist um, in the context of like UK austerity politics, is Mm responsibility. So like the thing that Carol is told over and over again is that in some ways her illness is her fault. Um, and what she needs is to change her beliefs about the world, um, to do her affirmations and kind of manifest a better vision of herself, and she will be well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's the that's the kind of wellness cult angle. Her doctors go medically, you are fine. So what is wrong with you? You tell us what is wrong with you, right? The 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 kind of medical institutions give up and go. Well, there's something you you've done this in some way um and then like socially and like emotionally and domestically she is letting herself down by being sick because she's not being she's not doing the productive labor the domestic labor that allows her husband to do whatever it is that he does when he's not on screen
0: yes one one hundred thousand percent and again like one of one of the most like one of the hardest things with watching this movie is just how little compassion for Carol there is in this world, which obviously is how little compassion there uh, is for women in the world in which we find ourselves. And that dinner scene is, is such a good example of this, right? Because we have, its I, I forget the husband's profession, but it doesn't matter. He's, he's, he's got some fancy upper middle class job. He's a business uh, guy. Yeah, he does business. He, he he got an MBA and he started an app that uh so somehow did rent seeking for potting plants. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's my joke for the day, everyone. In this comedy horror podcast. Um, and again, this this is this is why this is why we're not a comedy show because <laughs> we're not good at it. I'm not good at it. Um, anyway. But so during that dinner sequence, right, like like the his business interlocutor, right, is just going on with this like awful sexist joke, just this this cringe-worthy, just nightmare stuff, and like Carol isn't laughing because Carol is like lost in contemplation over these blossoming medical concerns and, and what that means for her place in the world, right? This this you know as as an you know upper class upper middle class white woman, this very very well, might be one of the first times where she's really been jarred out of the comfort of that position now that she's kind of like encountering disability. And like, she, she doesn't laugh at the at the joke, right? Which is this huge social faux pas that could cost her husband this business arrangement. And, and it really, really just highlights like her entire existence is like, it's kind of like a Grundrissa point here, but like her entire existence is just to be this thing that facilitates the greasing of capital's machinery right there is no subjectivity there is no agency right she's less than a cog in a machine because cogs need to be changed when they're broken to keep the machine going
1: yeah exactly um but this there are there are solutions right there is or or at least the the film presents some sociological solutions and the so, and the solutions are the embrace of neoliberal responsibility, right? If you are, if you are made sick by your env- by your like the film even does this so explicitly because the film you're made sick by your environment. Okay, so the problem is the environment. No, the problem is you. There's a there's a scene in the in the retreat center where a group are talking with this kind of cult leader, um, and he says to one of them that you were you're sick because of your anger, and it's sort of like. Oh, so even when we do embrace the systemic, right, the 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 kind of materialistic, the the idea of a kind of a broader world, again, the pot, the political solutions, the social solutions collapse back inward onto the self. Yes, absolutely. This is a this film is like a a kind of like burningly good indictment of the neoliberalization of like social relationships.
0: Ooh, go on, go on. I like this point. So
1: like, uh, like this idea that actually your relationships are assets to be invested in or to be managed or to have like, you are, uh, primarily responsible for yourself. Like none of Carol's friends offer to help, mm-hmm. right? None of them, none of them, none of them seem to care. Her husband cares a little bit, but then quickly disappears when it becomes too much work. Um, And so it's left to the new people that she encounters, this new community of people who are also sick, um, who seem to be the ones who actually do care about her. And I think you have two models of sociality, right? You have the neoliberal model, which is full of kind of wellness speak. And then you actually have like a communized model of collective care, right? The only, uh, and I think we'll get more into this when we start talking about things like uh, the AIDS crisis, and maybe even things like long COVID. But it's that communized model of collective care that is a kind of gen would necessarily require a kind of ground up reworking of social relations and the abolition of the social model depicted in the first half of the film.
0: That is absolutely correct. And it's a shame you don't have a third book coming out next year for me to try to plug here. <laughs> <laughs> yet, yet, listeners, yet that we know of. But this is the licret guy who is nothing if not prolific. Um, but so, so, of course, like I, I will now, I will now summon uh, one of the most listened horror vanguard episodes, uh, Midsummer.
1: The, mm-hmm. This
0: this kind of reminded me a lot of Midsummer, right? Because we get that sequence in Midsummer where she's she's in the kind of Swedish death cult um and and kind of like expressing these kind of sorrows these pent-up anguishes that her kind of like shitty boyfriend never really like or just wasn't able to provide the space for i should say and that society was like oh have some pills until you're better the contemporary rest cure right for women just just you know shut up and take these antidepressants right like these anti-anxiety meds and just deal with the fact you live in hell as long as you don't lose that productivity But, and again, like, you know, I I think that, that, that is a much weaker kind of exploration of what's going on here in safe, because that's actually positing something like, you know, positive rather than something like, like, this is like, so like, you know, like, like, this is kind of like, like a negative dialectics thing, right? Like, you know, we we have the, 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 kind of synthesis that's happening here is like, shit's getting worse for Carol. Like there's movement, which is hopeful. There's change, which, which kind of implies the potential for something better on the horizon. But in her case, that first involves like a step down, right? Because one of the reasons why her friends stopped talking to her. And I think this is like a, a, a read of this film. That's, that's very useful is that she becomes subaltern to them. She's no longer an upper middle-class white woman uh, uh, married responsibly mothering a child, <laughs> attending her Pilates classes uh, that would be peer to them. She's now disabled. Right, she's openly talking about her injuries with her friends, her wounds, her suffering. And that's mm-hmm. that's uncouth from that social standpoint, right? That's signaling her as as being someone with a disability. And I think like, we, we can just immediately see how her friends just don't want to have... And, and, and that scene where she's talking about her illness, like just, just the uncomfortability radiating off of her friend is just like so fucking grim.
1: I mean, I think this brings up maybe... Um, something that's really, really important to, to, to talk about, which is basically the interrelationship between class and self-help discourse. Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Let's talk about Louise Hay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kick us off. Uh, so Louise Hay, um, kind of a nobody, but during the height of the AIDS crisis, churns out this book called You Can Heal Your Life. Um, and, and, and it's it absolutely just, just this, this viperously insidious, this poisonous little book. Uh, the, the main thesis of the book is that you can heal your AIDS by doing positive affirmations in the mirror. And, and of course, the, the underlying uh, uh, implication of that is that the reason people have AIDS and suffer from that disease and die from that disease it is because they weren't honoring themselves. They weren't loving themselves. They weren't accepting themselves. They weren't doing this kind of self help mirror work. And uh, one of Todd Haynes's inspirations for making SAFE was kind of this exploration and this scathing indictment of self help and uh, Louisa Hay, or Louise Hay rather. Again, and it's, it's a perfect
1: model of this idea of responsabilization, right? Yes. You are responsible um, for what has happened to you. It, like buying into this kind of model of self-help is becoming the good neoliberal subject by going, actually, if I just had the right thoughts, it's like, it's not even neoliberalism as this kind of like economic force. It's neoliberalism is this sort of like political theology, right? If I, if I just thought the right way, if I say the right words, um, then, then the social, world itself kind of loses its efficacy and it's like it's so it's so like honestly i i i feel kind of like slightly viscerally disgusted by a lot of like self-help uh culture
0: precisely for this reason i i i could not agree more like self-help just it's it's so blood-boiling when i when i think about it contextually because all of these you know like like absolute charlatans peddling whatever self-help junk is coming out right now are, are only able to function because of the holes that capitalism puts in the fabric of our social landscape right like it is it is just the absence of medical care it is just the absence of community and these people are pouring their little nightmares into those holes in, in, in an effort to make money and not heal a damn thing and even even like like turning our attention back to louise Hay. And, and you can heal your life, right? Uh, she, she was on Oprah. She was doing national speaking tours. She was heralded um, as someone doing good during AIDS at an exact moment where politicians in the United States, in the UK, all over the world were like, oh, well, this is a gay disease. And if it's killing gay people, that's their problem. And maybe even a good thing. Yeah. You know, like, like AIDS was openly genocidal, right? Openly ethnocidal. You know, it's the the reason why there are so few so few queer elders, is because we lived in a society where Louise Hay and her little shit book got got speaking tours and engagements, and queer people were getting you know like chased out of the streets by cops for trying to protest for health care,
1: and 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 even in the context of the film, right. <clears throat> Oh, sorry. I've not been doing my daily affirmations.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, do some mirror work and that cough will go away.
1: Yeah, and it'll go away. Um, even in the context of the film, right, there are these... Obviously, uh, uh, Carol has these kind of like very specific physical reactions. But mm-hmm. there's also these kind of like mental and psychological responses, right? She has anxiety attacks. She's yep. she's she's frightened of the world she is convinced the world is coming to an end she's worried about the environment and if and in fairness all of those things are entirely reasonable responses for the world that we live in entirely like um it's why it's why i think it's really interesting and important that we talk about both climate anxiety and climate grief Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because the solutions to those things are are not just to change the way that you think right because that's fundamentally admitting your own disempowerment, right? If you go, well, I just won't think about it, ergo it won't be a problem anymore, is basically going, well, I don't have the agency to change anything about it anyway. Uh, Whereas we know, like, the great kind of structural problems of existence are not solved through individual self-actualization. That's a form of selfish escapism, Mm -hmm. right? They're they're solved through actually admitting and collectivizing and sharing our contingency, fragility, and fears, because it's in that that there is a kind of model of like
0: um, capacity to change things. You you are absolutely correct. And again, like I think there's like a Lovecraftian point I I'd, li- I'd like to make here because Carol's response to what's going on is correct, right? Like you we like we get these like absolutely brilliant a brilliant shot in this fucking movie where we see like there's like a truck spewing fumes. You know, and like, of course, everybody else driving down this busy Californian road is just like, oh, it's just yeah, another... it's down the L.A. freeway, which yeah. is a nightmare place. <laughs> and and, and Carol, Carol starts coughing violently as if that thing is trying to kill her because it is, you know, and it's all of these encounters with stuff in our world, like they're fumigating the uh, uh, dry cleaners place for pests. Right. Which is which is a very toxic, very capitalistic response to an industry that's already like woefully poisonous. And, like, K- Carol's response is to act as if that's killing her because it is. Because it is because these things are killing you. They're just killing you on a time scale that's hard for the human to grapple with. And I think, like, um, oh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Loading. 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 Okay, it's lost to me. Never mind. <laughs> we had one point, and that's Carol, K- K- Carol. Carol's response. We shouldn't look at her and be like, wow. Oh, I, I, my other points come to me now. Um, we, we shouldn't look at her and be like, oh, there's, some, there's something wrong with her mind. There's something wrong with our minds for not sharing in the pain that she's experiencing, right? And it would be tempting to be like, oh, well, that's just some psychosomatic condition to do some mind-body dualism and just say, Car- Carol just needs to be tougher, right? To just 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 tough up and you can st- stiff up her lip, you know, keep calm, carry on. All those, all those uh, Doctor Who posters that are nauseating to look at. But the the kind of problem with that is is like this: there, there's a somatic in psychosomatic, right? The, the the this 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 kind of like simplistic mind body dualism of the rider and the horse, it's it's just outdated. It's laughable, right? These things are so interwoven, you know. Like what hurts the mind hurts the body, and and back and forth. And Carol is caught in the midst of this. And, and any you know you're you're absolutely right. Any attempt to to gain proximity to the actual root social causes to do something radical in the true sense of that word, you know, gets you expelled from society. Right. And then as you float to the bottom, you're left open for all these grifters to scoop you up. Yeah. Because, because there, like, I feel like there are a couple of things that we should definitely touch on before we wrap
1: this up. Um, which is, um, we've, we've talked a little bit about, about the, uh, the link to the AIDS crisis. Um, Uh, but maybe I think a really good thing to try and touch on here would be
0: the prevalence of uh, COVID and long COVID. Yeah, yeah, let's touch on this. What what are are some of your thoughts?
1: Well, like, there were these moments of, like, kind of, like, disorientation watching this where you first start to see people wearing, like, N95 masks in the support Mm -hmm. group meetings, and they talk about, like, air filtration. Uh, And I was, like like this weird moment of kind of like temporal dislocation. But I think if we take seriously this idea of the collectivized model of 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 communized care, of this idea of actually um, it is not in our isolation and through our own individualized effort that we actually get better, but in uh, providing space for that through new social formations, it means that, like organizing around issues of long COVID is actually a super important political problem. Right, the demands for like good, clean air, ventilation in all crowded buildings, or like ways of kind of mitigating and managing the debilitating social isolation that people uh, feel when dealing with long COVID. Because I imagine anyone who's got a serious chronic illness will watch what happens to Carol and just go, "That's happened to me." Yep. This this idea of like becoming anathema, becoming like completely cut off from your social circle, and it's like, um. You know the the kind of leftist position is all, is always like everything for everything for every uh, for everyone, but also like I think it's important to be like everyone for everyone as yes. well. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a model of gu- of guidance of being like actually we won't leave you to depend upon those individualized neoliberalized models of social communication, but actually will be the ones to be actually to kind of like draw you back into that community of reciprocity through whatever means necessary.
0: I couldn't think of a better way to to wrap this discussion on Todd Haynes is safe I think that that is a beautiful point and that really sums up I, I think largely both of our approaches to this film any any final thoughts from you I I, th- I think you know as 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 a lot of our episodes they wind up ending when one of us just says something so so damn good there's really no follow-up and I think you just hit the nail on the head with that <laughs> okay. thank you everyone uh, for listening to our review of Todd Haynes' Safe from 1995 Uh, we are your source for cutting edge emerging movie horror reviews definitely not stuff that is nearly three decades old Um, certainly wouldn't be us Uh, thank you for listening Uh, please check out the Patreon oh uh, like, like, review subscribe, what do they say on YouTube I can't remember right now Uh, do good things in the world, bye We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky!